Uh, there's a lot of angles that you could take into it. So I'm going to take a um, self-publicising angle, draw your attention to uh, my book that comes out in February, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Uh, there's a chapter in that book on um, C.S. Lewis's what's become to be known as the argument from reason. Um, and like uh, many arguments for uh, different worldview positions, there's not really any such thing as the argument from reason any more than there is such a thing as the uh, design argument or the cosmological argument or whatever. Rather, these things tend to be a sort of family of uh, closely related arguments. So I'm going to look at a number of different angles on the argument from reason uh, from Lewis. I'll mainly just be presenting uh, his way of formulating these things. And I'll also then uh, start quoting a few uh, contemporary atheists uh, to put that uh, into the uh, more sort of modern context uh, as we go through. Uh, Lewis uh, argues that a theory uh, of life, universe, and everything that explained everything else uh, in the whole universe, but which made it impossible to believe that our thinking was valid. And this is the, the angle on, well, how do we know that what we think is reliable? Um, we uh, ineluctably uh, rely upon um, the way we think about reality as a guide to finding out what's true about it. But what are the sort of preconditions of that confidence in our cognition? Or what are the implications of the fact that we have this uh, ability to know things? So the theory that explained everything else in the universe but made it impossible to believe that our thinking was valid would, of course, be utterly out of court as a, as a, as a worldview. For that theory itself would have been reached by thinking and argued for by reasoning with other people and so on. And if thinking's not valid, that theory would have destroyed its own credentials. Uh, in other words, in terms of worldviews, you, you want to avoid sawing off the branch that you're sitting on <laughs> in order to hold that worldview. And according to Lewis, it would be impossible to accept naturalism, materialism, metaphysical naturalism as a worldview, uh, to accept naturalism itself if we really and consistently believed what naturalism tells us about reality and the implications of that. For naturalism is, of course, a, a system of thought, but for naturalism, uh, all thoughts are mere events with irrational or irrational causes. If everything is uh, atoms in the void, as the ancient Greeks would have put it, if the material, physical, uh, energetic universe is all that there really is, then that's all our thoughts really are. And Lewis thought that this made it inconsistent to trust our thoughts. He says, it is to me at any rate impossible to regard the thoughts which make up naturalism in that way as really nothing but matter in motion, and at the same time to regard them as a real insight into external reality, to trust those thoughts to really tell us the nature of reality. And I'm going to look at four different uh, aspects uh, or different lines of argument that cluster around this family. And I've labelled them the argument from insight. He was talking about insight into reality beyond ourselves there. The arguments from aboutness and truth. And finally, a little bit more complex complexly, uh, the argument from logic. 
picking up on, on that comment of his about regarding our thoughts as giving us an insight into reality beyond our own minds. He says, to retain such an expectation of insight into reality whilst believing in naturalism, believing that those thoughts are just material things, would be like expecting that the accidental shape taken by the splash when you upset the milk uh, should give you a correct account of how the jug was made and why it was upset. He's arguing at this stage by sort of trying to bring out an, an analogy. And he uses a, a slightly different uh, one in a different uh, context. Um, and I've got an appropriate photo that goes with this. He puts it like this. To, to be the result of a series of mindless events is one thing. Uh, to be a kind of plan or a true account of the laws according to which those mindless events happen is quite another. So think about being a scientist, trying to work out, well, what are the laws of nature? Thus, the Gulf Stream, for example, produces all sorts of results. For instance, the, the temperature of the Irish Sea is caused by the Gulf Stream. What it does not produce is maps of the Gulf Stream, but if logic, as we find it operative in our own minds, is really a result of mindless nature, then it's a, a result as improbable as that, as improbable as thinking that laws of nature would actually cause insights or maps of their own reality. The laws whereby logic obliges us to think, if we're going to think logically, turn out to be the laws according to which every event in space and time must happen. The man who thinks that's an ordinary or probable result doesn't really understand, he argues. It's as if, and here's the other analogy, it's as if when I knocked out my pipe, the ashes arranged themselves into letters which read, we are the ashes of a knocked out pipe. But if the validity of knowledge can't be explained in that way, and if perpetual happy coincidence throughout the entire history of recorded time is out of the question, and it's obviously implying that he thinks it is, then surely we must seek the real explanation out where. How is it that, that we get these maps that describe the way reality is produced from reality? Where thought's strictly rational, he argues, it must be in some odd sense not really ours, but cosmic or super-cosmic. It's not just a coincidence that we get these insights. I think... That's sort of putting it at a sort of analogical, fairly sort of intuitive level. And the other three start unpacking some particular aspects of the nature of, of reasoning and being logical um, that draw that out more clearly. Here's the arguments from about aboutness or intentionality, as philosophers call it, and truth. Lewis argues that, well, think about acts of thinking. Acts of thinking are no doubt events, okay? But they're very special sorts of events. They are events that are about something other than themselves. They, they have a, a reference, an intentionality towards other things. And they're events that can be true or false. So I have the thought, um, the coffee is in the thermos flask. Uh, and the coffee that's in the thermos flask is still comparatively warm. So I have this thought, and it... It has this sort of aboutness to this other object, this other reality, and we say that that thought has the ability to either be true or false of the coffee in the thermos flask. 
However, Lewis reckons that physical events are not about anything and can't be true or false of anything. If you look up in a physics textbook or a chemistry textbook, whatever, you're looking for one of the properties of matter, you will not find listed amongst those properties, you know, um, certain atomic weight, um, standing in certain uh, relations of uh, gravitational attraction, um, certain strength under compaction, uh, aboutness, being true, a sort of different sort of philosophical category. Now, if Lewis is right about this, thinking and reasoning events in our minds can't be reduced to nothing but physical events in our brains. Because the former events possess qualities that the latter can't, or don't, at least. The quality of being about something and the quality of being true or false. We experience, as Lewis, thoughts which are about or refer to something other than themselves, but physical events as such, can't in any intelligible sense be said to be about or to refer to anything. They can be caused by something, but to refer to something? As Raymond Tallis, uh, not a Christian, not a theist, uh, in his recent book, Aping Mankind, puts it, I think this brings it out quite nicely, he says, intentionality tears up the seamless fabric of a causally closed material universe. It points in the direction opposite to causation. It is incapable of being accommodated in the materialistic world picture as it's currently construed. Lewis again, with a nice uh, picture to bring this out. And here's a nice picture of uh, Galileo that goes with it. We're compelled, says Lewis, to admit between the thoughts of a terrestrial astronomer and the behaviour of matter several light years away, that particular relation we called truth. is having true thoughts about these things. But this relation has no meaning at all if we try and make it exist between the matter of the star and the astronomer's brain, considered as a lump of matter. The brain may be in all sorts of relations to the star, no doubt. It's in a spatial relation and a time relation and so on and so forth. But to talk of one bit of matter as being true about another bit of matter seems to me to be nonsense. Finally, and a bit more at a complicated level, what we call the argument from logic... Uh, This is uh, in his book, uh, Miracles, that he puts it this way particularly. And uh, also in an essay of his. Uh, He talks about, we might use this phrase, I believe X because of Y. He says, well, that's a bit ambiguous, actually. You, You need to unpack what you mean by that quite carefully. So on the one hand, there's, there's the relation of physical cause and effect, efficient causality, as in um, grandfather is ill today because, cause and effect, sense of because, he ate lobster yesterday and the lobster was off. On the other hand, we've got the relation of, of logical grounds and consequent concept. These are the logical grounds 
from which you should deduce this logical consequence. As in, grandfather must be ill today because, ground consequence sense of because, because he hasn't got up yet. And we know he's invariably an early riser when he's well. So see, this, this is a physical cause producing a physical effect. This is a um, logical argument. This is a syllogism. Now, grandfather's failure to get out of bed doesn't cause grandfather to be ill, obviously. Uh, nor does it cause us to conclude that he's ill. Uh, if we're not thinking about it or not reasoning well, we might well come to the wrong conclusion. Rather, it's, it, his failure to get out of bed in this instance is our, is our grounds for making the logical inference or deduction that he is ill. As the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel puts it, if we can reason, if we can reason, and of course it's very difficult to say, but of course we can't, <laughs> certainly impossible for me to argue that, we just, okay, so we can reason, but if we can, the implication of that is it's because our thoughts can obey the order of logical relations among propositions. That's what it is to reason well, is to obey the laws of logic that determine which consequences or inference follow from which premises. But how do you fit that ability to do that with a worldview that says the only kind of reality that there is is metaphysically naturalistic, is materialistic, and so on? Lewis again, a train of reasoning has no value as a means of finding the truth unless each step in it is connected with what went before in the ground consequent relationship. I think this and this and therefore I think this and I think this as well and therefore I think that. But if what we think at the end of our reasoning about something is to be a valid conclusion, the correct answer to the question why do you think this, must begin with the ground consequent. Well, because blah, 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 blah. On the other hand, every event in nature, conceived as, as a closed materialistic system, nature with the capital N there, must be connected with previous events in the cause and effect relationship. But if naturalism is true, our acts of thinking are just are nothing but events in nature connected one to another by the cause-effect relationship. Therefore, the true answer to why do you think this must begin with the cause-and-effect sense of because. But that's a problem, because to be caused isn't the same thing as being proved. Wishful thinking, um, prejudices... Uh, the delusions of madness, they're all caused, you could say, but they're ungrounded, rationally speaking. In 2011, philosopher Paul Copan asked Richard Dawkins on one of his book tours uh, to promote the God delusion, I think it was, uh, this question, which you will very quickly see as a sort of rephrasing of this argument from reason. 
Um, in recent philosophical literature, particularly the American philosopher Alvin Plantinga has uh, put a version of this argument, um, and indeed in the first time he, he put it in his uh, book Warrant and Proper Function, he referenced footnoted Lewis as having been a sort of uh, predecessor in giving this kind of argument. And so Paul Copan uh, puts this question to Richard Dawkins, and then we'll see Dawkins' response. Uh, you say in your book, River Out of Eden, that we're dancing to our DNA. It seems hard to differentiate between the arguments of the atheist, who believes himself to be more rational than the, the theist, when actually the same non-rational physical genetic forces are at work in, in both. So that even if the atheist is correct it seems to me that it would be completely by accident rather than by virtue of rationality that the, the atheist has. So I was curious as to what you'd say in response to that summary. If the same forces, materialistic forces, are at work in both the atheist and the theist, why would we consider the atheist to be more rational? Dawkins. Um, I'm not quite sure that I've got this. I mean... The same forces are shaping both the atheist and the theist, and indeed everybody, yet we come to different conclusions. Is your problem, how is it that we can come to different conclusions if our brains are shaped by the same forces? Wrong end of stick time. Uh, no, that's not the, the question. So Copan clarifies. He says, no, my question is, why should the atheist believe he's more rational than the theist if the same forces are at work in both of them, that is, forces beyond both of their control? Dawkins, you could ask the same question about any difference of opinion. Well, yes, of course you could, but that's irrelevant, so what? Um, and then he changes the subject, and then he says, if you were to ask me why I am confident that my scientific rationalism um, is, uh, I think he was going to say rational, and then in the context thought about it, um, but that's a supposition on my part, but then he says, is the right answer? I mean, the answer is that it works. But that's an answer to a you know, different question than one would put, at the very least. But notice here, first of all, that Dawkins, of course, as a metaphysical naturalist, accepts the premise that the same forces are shaping both the atheist and the theist, and everybody, our brains are shaped by the same forces, that all that is going on, since our minds are our brains, and our brains just are material things, and material things just are objects governed by the laws of cause and effect that we uncover in physics and so on, yes, he agrees that really metaphysical naturalism has to, in the end, reduce talk about thoughts and reasoning and aboutness and truth and falsity to talk about material objects. But he doesn't seem to have a way round the apparent implications of that for our trust in the rationality that we use to even argue for naturalism or for theism. And it might come as a surprise to you to know that there's quite a few contemporary atheist thinkers whom one could quote along very similar lines here. Um, this is arch modernist Richard Rorty. He puts it like this. He says, the idea that one species or organism is, unlike all the others, 
orientated not just towards its own increased propensity, what works for survival, but towards truth, is as un-Darwinian as the idea that every human being has a built-in moral compass. And you can take it as read that he thinks that's very un-Darwinian. Or atheist John Gray, he says, to think of science as the search for truth is to renew a mystical faith, the faith of Plato and Augustine, that truth rules the world, that truth is divine. Modern humanism is the faith that through science, humankind can know the truth and so be set free. But if Darwin's theory of natural selection, and I should point out here, like Planting would point out, it's not actually Darwin's theory of natural selection, which is the, the key here. It's metaphysical naturalism as a worldview, plus whatever scientific story of our development and origins you want to put in there. It's the naturalism that's key. Uh, you can just have to read that in there. Uh, it's true. This is impossible. The human mind serves evolutionary success. What works? Not truth. To think otherwise is to resurrect the pre-Darwinian era that humans are different from other animals. Darwinian theory tells us that an interest in truth is not needed for survival or reproduction. Truth has no systematic evolutionary advantage over error. Or atheist Patricia Churchland. I'm quoting atheists from a range of you know, writers of postmodernists. John Gray is an atheist, anti-secular humanist. Um, Patricia Churchland, philosopher of mind, um, boiled down to the essentials, a nervous system enables an organism to succeed in feeding, fleeing, fighting, and reproducing, uh, what she some, somewhat cheekily calls the four Fs. The principal chore of a nervous system is to get the body parts, someone got it, where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth definitely takes the hindmost. Truth definitely takes the hindmost. But if truth takes the hindmost, given the assumption that naturalism is true, how on earth can the naturalist have any rational confidence that naturalism is true? This is uh, new atheist physicist Victor Stenger um, responding to theologian John Hort's argument along similar lines in his book, God and the New Atheism, that, that naturalism logically undermines cognitional confidence, confidence in our reasoning. Um, Stenger embraces, as a, as, a, as a response to that argument from reason, a self-contradiction. He says, the new atheists do not trust any minds, including their own. Hort is saying you can't trust your reasoning if you also, consistently, if you also believe in naturalism. Well, Stenger says, well, look, the new atheists don't trust any minds, including their own. That's why we require the objective methods of science and reason. Of course, it's pretty difficult for even a neo-atheist to employ the objective methods of science and reason without trusting their reason. Well, French atheist André Consponville he recognises in his book, uh, The Book of Atheist Spirituality, he actually argues himself into this corner. And he, he kind of recognises that this cognitional confidence entails uh, an anti-naturalistic an anti viewpoint, and as we'll see, you can extend that in, then into an argument for, for theism of some kind. It drives him to embrace the self-contradiction, and 
beg the question against arguments for theism. He says this at one point. He says, after discussing some of the sort of arguments for God, he says, why, why shouldn't reason, our reason, get lost in the universe if the latter is too big, too deep, too complex, too dark, or too bright for it? Indeed, how can we be certain our reason is perfectly rational? Only a God could guarantee that. <laughs> yes! <laughs> So Lewis, then careful to distinguish these stages of the argument, having sort of argued that trust in our reason doesn't fit with a a naturalistic view of things, so it's an argument against metaphysical naturalism first and foremost, then says, well, what worldview would fit with it? It's an open question whether each man's reason exists absolutely on its own or whether it's the result of some rational cause, in fact, of some other reason with a capital R. That other reason might conceivably be found to depend on a third, and so on. It would be no matter how far this process was carried, provided you found reason coming from reason at each stage. Because he reckons the problem is when you try and explain reason on the basis of non-reason, that you get this undercutting of reason. So it's only when you're asked to believe in reason coming from non-reason that you must cry halt, for if you don't, all thought is discredited. It's therefore obvious that sooner or later you must admit a reason which exists absolutely on its own. Either that or you've got an infinite regress. The problem is whether you or I can be such a self-existent reason. Well, he reckons it almost uh, immediately answers itself. Existence on one's own is the kind of existence that naturalists attribute to the whole show, or that supernaturalists attribute to God. It's clear that my reason's grown up gradually since my birth and it's interrupted for several hours each night. I therefore cannot be that eternal self-existent reason, yet if any thought is valid, such a reason must exist and must be the source of my own imperfect and intermittent rationality. If you want to delve deeper into this argument, let me recommend two sources for you. One is Victor Reppert's comparatively recent book, C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea, Uh, in which uh, the American philosopher um, mounts a defence of this kind of argument from reason in in Lewis terms and teases apart some of the different strands of of the argument that had hitherto been sort of cludged together. Uh, This is quite a comparatively thin book published by IVP, uh, quite readable. And the the chapter on this uh, in my forthcoming book, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Thank you.